Good morning to you and Happy New Year to those who are worshiping in person at 155 Fairway Drive, to those who watch from the live stream, and Happy New Year to those who will be uh, watching the recorded uh, sermon and the uh, recorded worship later. It is such a wonderful time that we can come together at the end of the year in the last worship service of 2020 to listen to what God is telling us today to prepare us for what is to come in 2021. The last message of the year is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13, and it is entitled, Let Unity Flourish. Let Unity Flourish. You see, when a church is united, when our team is united, we will be ready for the challenges that we will be facing in 2021. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13, teaches us two things two ways for unity to flourish. And the first is to submit to the scripture, to submit to the scripture. So if you have the Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 6 and 7. Let me read to you. Verses 6 and 7 says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollo for your benefits, Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For those see things, uh, for, for who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know, over here, Paul singles out himself and Apollos as the model. They model the principle for the church to follow. What are the principle? What is the principle? What are the models that he talked about here, about all these things? Well, he was talking about all the metaphors that he has been teaching to the church. In chapter 3, he talks about gardening. And he was saying that Paul himself, and Apollos, they are actually working well as a model together as co-workers, whether you water, whether you plant, but God causes it to grow. Ultimately, glory be to God. So we are on equal footing as co-workers, and we model that. And also in chapter 3, he talks about building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that you have to choose the right material, the material that can stand the test of the fire, like gold and silver, Okay, like precious stones. But if you choose wood and hay and straw, they don't last. So what, it, what was he talking about? He was basically saying, if you are engaging in disunity, then you are choosing the materials that can't stand the fire. But if you choose to live together in unity, in respect of one another, then you are actually choosing gold and silver and precious stones. And Paul was saying, hey, Apollos and myself, we did just that to be a model for yourself. And remember that the church is more than the building. The church is the temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And if anyone he wants, if anyone destroy the temple, God will destroy that person. God will judge that person. And we take it seriously, Paul was saying, that together with Apollos, we want to be an example to you. And in chapter 4, he talks about we are both servants of God. We are stewards of God's resources. We are on equal footing. We serve together in unity, and we become a model. 
to model the principle of unity for you, church in Corinth, so that you can learn something for us. What to learn? To not go beyond what is written. To not go beyond what is written in the Old Testament Scripture. The only Scripture available to the New Testament Christians in the first century. The Old Testament Scriptures. Specifically addressing the issue of puffing up. One against another. Pitting one against another. The word pity, uh, puffed up means to fill with hot air. <laughs> Just saying those words gives you a picture of someone being arrogant and prideful. So Paul was addressing the, the, what is written in the scriptures that specifically talks about prideful attitude. And humility is needed for a church to be united, for people to learn how to respect each other. Because when we are puffed up, then we pit one against another. We pit Paul against Apollos. We pit Peter against Paul. And then we begin to rank them. That's what happened in the church in Corinth. You know, Paul was addressing and bringing the church back to the Bible to submit to the scriptures specifically on the issue of humility and not being arrogant and prideful because the Old Testament scriptures has ample example of priests and kings, of prophets and judges who were arrogant and it was the beginning of their downfall. Kings like Saul, kings like David and Solomon in their arrogance, that was the beginning of the downfall. Judges like Samson in his arrogance because of his mighty physical power, he was setting himself for the downfall. And prophets like Balaam, who was arrogant and not doing God's will. And they all set the example, the bad example of not doing the right thing. But more than that, in the Old Testament scriptures, the wisdom literature, including Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Psalms, consistently warn us against pride. You remember in, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, it says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And the first thing is haughty eyes, someone looking in the heavens, you know, despising everybody around them, prideful attitude. And why should the church not be puffed up? In verse 7, He reminds that, for those who see anything different in you, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So in, in three rhetorical questions expecting negative answers, Paul was challenging the church in Corinth. For who sees anything different in you? Meaning, do not be presumptuous. Who do you think you are? What do you have that you did not receive? Why are you so ungrateful? Whatever you have, all the spiritual gifts that you have are given by the Holy Spirit. You are a recipient. Be grateful. And third question he asked, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, you have no ground of boasting. 
So the answer is very obvious. Because no one and nothing and there's no good reason that you can be boastful and puffed up. So none of you is superior to another. There's no ground for boasting because your spiritual gifts and your natural blessings came from God. So be humble. Do not be prideful. That's the first lesson, how to build and flourish in unity. You know, one of the most blinding shortcomings that we find it hard to admit is pride. The nature of pride is not seeing things as, that what, as what they should be. Pride blinds us because we tend to magnify ourselves and we tend to shrink other people. And that prideful attitude alienates us from others. It destroys trust. It ruins relationships. It sets us on the path of destruction and failure. Many of you in the business community remember Jim Collins, that best-selling author from Stanford. And in, in one of the books, How the Mighty Fall, researching big corporations that fail in the U.S. and asking the question, why? And the number one reason for the failure of big corporations is the hubris born of success. Hubris born of success. Because they were so successful, then they became arrogant and they became prideful. In the Old Testament, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar's pride that caused him to be banished to the field to live like a beast until he repented and humbled himself in Daniel chapter 4. And you remember the Tower of Babel when people gathered together to build the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves, that arrogant spirit. God put a stop to it by confusing the language. Genesis chapter 11. And you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul has a thorn in his flesh that God refused to take away to keep him humble. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you. So be humble and I will give you sufficient grace to endure the thorns in you. And sometimes God does that to us. And Peter, of course, who thought that he will never fail Jesus and when he denied the Lord three times, he has to be restored by that Sea of Galilee that is recorded in John chapter 21 to recommit himself to walk with Jesus and to be the messenger of the gospel. We see examples after examples in the Bible of leaders who were not humble but walked the path of arrogance and prideful spirit to their dismay to their destruction sometimes. That is sad. And same for us too. As we prepare ourselves to meet the new year, and we don't know what is going to happen, but we know that we need to be humble, that we should not develop, foster a prideful spirit because that will cause disunity within our church, within our family, and, and within our office uh, with other people. What are some of the possible sources of pride? Very naturally, I think of two. One, achievements, success. 
right? Hubris born out of success is the number one failure for big corporations' achievements. So in our church, we keep reminding each other, no one can do church alone. Truly, no one can do church alone. The pastors can do it, the deacons can do it, officers can do it, but together with everybody, with the whole congregation, we can build the church of Jesus Christ by the power of God, by the grace of God, because Christ is the head of the church. Achievements. Watch out when you are being successful. Give glory to God. Give credit to other people. Be humble. Secondly, and this is probably more common, flattery words. We give generously encouragement to one another, which is great, but sometimes flattery words. And the worst is you begin to believe them. You begin to believe those words, and that will be the beginning of your downfall. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we need reality checks. Reality checks like painful, painful disciplines. Discipline is never pleasant, Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us. But discipline that is painful will give you a long-lasting memories. Don't do that again. It will be deeply embedded in your memories, in your DNA, and say, I should never take that path again, the path of arrogance. And sometimes God sent painful disciplines to us. And sometimes we experience failures so that we know that we are not, we are not omnipotent. Only God is omnipotent. We fail as human. We err. And sometimes God sent us critiques. You know, none of us like critiques. We like people who agree with us. But God sometimes surrounds us with some critiques so that we are aware that no matter how smart you are and how good your plan is, we do have blind spots. And blind spots is never spotted by you. It's always spotted by other people because you can't see it to begin with. And God sent these reality checks to keep us humble. But you know what? Pride has many faces. Sometimes pride reveals our inferiority complex because we are not confident uh, uh, within ourselves. So we tend to overcompensate by, by expressing a prideful and an overly confident expression, hoping that we can cover up what is really very, very uh, uh, weak and, and uncomfortable and, and incompetent sense uh, within us, the inferiority complex. And sometimes pride can reveal in that expression. And sometimes pride also disguises as humility in, in the natural expression that Christians are so, so easily uttered out. Uh, thank God. Uh, glory be to God. Uh, by the grace of God, we can do all this. But deep in your heart, sometimes there is a, a sense and a trace of, well, I, I, I first saw it and I suggested it to my team, you know. Uh, well, I, I, I kind of see it first, 
So I kind of guide our people through that, and, and that's why we say it's a team effort. And in that very subtle sense, pride seeps in to our reality, and that can happen. That pride truly sometimes can disguise as humility. I have a friend who gave me this advice to remind me as I take leadership positions how to keep the reality of pride in check. He said you need to send this pride alert, and this is a pride alert, just like evacuation alert a while ago when the fire was going on around here. This pride alert will remind you, watch out, watch out, you are on the path of arrogance. He said, do you have individuals in your life who can confront you honestly? Tell me the names of these individuals. If you can't tell me names of individuals who can confront you honestly, you are on the path of arrogance and you are on the downward path of destruction. Because the higher you go, the less people will be honest with you. You know why? There are two reasons. First, you are too powerful by them. You are too influential, and people are fearful of you. And secondly, the people are too trusting of you because you set a good track record of good decisions after good decisions after good decisions, and they begin to trust you to the point of blindly now, they are not questioning anymore. And that will be your downward path. Do you have that pride alert in your life? If I ask you right now, do you have individuals in your life who can confront you honestly without any fear of repercussions? Do you have that? If not, surround yourself with this kind of people because they will keep you humble and they will keep you stable for the long haul in leadership. Be humble. Submit to the scriptures of God, specifically in the areas of humility. Be watchful for prideful spirit if we want to build a church of unity, if we want unity to flourish. And secondly, there's a second way for unity to flourish, which is to choose the way of the cross. To choose the way of the cross, look at verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. It says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And with that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
You know, even as you read these words, it reminds you of Jesus Christ. It reminds you of the way of the cross, to deny yourself, to take up the cross, and to follow Jesus. To flourish in unity as a church, we need to choose the way of the cross. In verse 8, Paul gives three exclamations with sarcastic and ironic remarks to shame the Corinthians, to provoke them and say, hey, return to God's word and return to the way of the cross. He says, already you have all you want, meaning you are satisfied by overeating. You are full of spiritual gifts. Already you have become rich, meaning, well, the church in Corinth, you are full of spiritual resources. And thirdly, Without us, you have become king. Well, without having the apostles to have a share in it, you are already reigning like a king. You pass judgment on the apostles. You rank them according to priorities. You despise them. Are you king? Are you reigning? You know, he was using sarcastic remarks to provoke them to start thinking. But you know what? He ends verse 8 by saying, And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. <laughs> I hope that you are actually reigning by the Holy Spirit and doing it according to the teaching of God's Word. But you know what? You are not in that state yet because if you are reigning, we, the apostles, will be reigning as well. But you know what? That's not the condition that we are in. So in beginning in verse 9, all the way down to verses, uh, verse 13, Paul begins to line up their sufferings for the sake of the gospel. That's the reality. And he set up a contrast between them and himself, that he has not entered the time of reigning, and neither have they. And they should be humble enough to recognize that and do not fall into a false impression as if they can critique and they can judge and they can rank other leaders. And he spelled out his suffering in two metaphors here. In verse 9, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. What picture is Paul painting here? Well, he is painting a prisoner of war, being paraded at the end of the victory processions by the enemies. And the outcome of that procession is all this captured prisoner of war is to be thrown to the gladiators in the sports arena to fight against each other to death or to fight against wild beasts to death. And death is the most common result as a spectacle for those who sit around that sports arena and in fact, Paul says, not only to human beings, but to angels as well. We are on display in this whole universe. There's nothing to hide. Everything is exposed to human and to angels. That's how we are. 
And that gives a reality check on the church of Corinth and say, hey, people, be humble. Even our leaders, even our apostles are not reigning. They are still suffering for the gospel. And verse 10 again, he used some irony to mock the way Corinthians are viewing themselves as quite different from themselves. The Corinthians' views on Paul was on a worldly standard. In, in verse 10, he says, We are foes for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, but we in disrepute. See, Paul views himself spiritually, that he's the opposite of what they think. And the majority of the Corinthians are not among the wise, the strong, and the honor, but they are acting like they were. They were only acting with the false impression. Paul says, we are full for Jesus Christ, but you are wise in Christ. The apostles has become a spectacle for the universe to see, to mock upon, making them a fool before the spectators. But they are actually reflecting the gospel, which is folly in the eyes of the worldly wise. But the Corinthians consider themselves as wise in Christ, actually find themselves in the seat of the scornful. And they are in Christ, yes, but they are altogether missing Christ. They miss it all. Paul says we are weak, but you are strong. The Corinthians consider the apostles are weak. The cross appears to be the weakness of God to save sinners, but it is actually the power of God for salvation. But the Corinthians think they are strong in comparison with Paul. But they are actually weak in that they are puffed up like hot air. They are only being arrogant. Paul says, you are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. The Corinthians would be among the spectators watching the dishonored to go to the death. But Paul is only dishonored before the world because the world also dishonored Christ. Paul was identifying with Christ. And that put the Corinthians in the place of jeopardy. You are sitting as a spectator, jeering on those you consider dishonored, the apostles, that are walking on a path toward death, like the gladiators. Which side are you on, Corinthians? Are you on the Lord's side or are you on the world's side? You are in a position of jeopardy. Watch out. Watch out. And as Paul continues to unpack the sacrifices and the sufferings as a messenger of the gospel, in verse 11 all the way to verses 13, he begins to show the nature of the dishonor for the messenger of the cross, for the messenger of the gospel. In verse 11 to 12, Paul gave a tribulation list, his hardships, because of the hostility to the gospel, because of the arduous lifestyle of itinerary minister. He listed seven tribulations, even though it is, it is not meant to be exhaustive, but he listed seven tribulations. He said, to the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor and we work with our own hands. 
And that's the sacrifice the messenger of the gospel has paid in order to press on and share the gospel uh, in a very hostile environment. And secondly, they not only endure physical suffering, but they also endure emotional humiliations. Look at verse 12, the second part, to verse 13, the first part. He says, when reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And that really reminds you of the way of the cross. The way of the cross of Jesus that he taught the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember as we preached through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? He was teaching the personnel in God's kingdom to turn the other cheeks. Do not retaliate. Love your enemies. Go the second mile. And Paul was reminding the Corinthians to go back to the way of the cross, the way that Jesus has shown us. And finally, in verse 13, towards the end, he said, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Here he put himself in a hyperbole that he was experiencing bruised ego. He was experiencing trashed dignity that we have become nothing, like scum, like refuse. They are both to be removed by a process of cleaning, like the hand sanitizers we apply so often nowadays to wipe out viruses from your hands. Paul was saying that we are like trash. We are like garbage. We are dirt. We are nothing. We are being trampled under the feet with bruised ego with trashed dignity. There are no accolades. There's no ankles after the performance. There's no applause. That's who we are for the sake of the gospel. What a difference when even Paul mentioned how for the sake of the gospel, he will continue to walk that path uh, of the Jesus' way. See, the Corinthians' view of Paul matches to the non-Christian world, the worldly standard. The Corinthians think that their relatively prosperous condition reflects God's blessing. But Paul points to his suffering for the sake of the gospel as a more accurate measure of Christian faithfulness. Paul identifies with Christ while the Corinthians identify with the worldly wisdom. Is it the Jesus' way or is it the Corinthians' way that you are choosing? In this passage here, he asks us to choose the way of the cross, the way that pleases the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, as we wrap up the year, I want to remind you and myself that unity flourishes when we are committed to a high view of the Scriptures and to the way of the cross. And unity continues to flourish when we submit to God's word, especially in the areas of humility, and choose the way of the cross to follow Jesus. And these are the best soils for the unity of the church to flourish. And we want to have that as a foundation 
that usher us into the new year in 2021 to continue to build a vibrant church of disciple makers. Let me give you two reminders as I conclude the message today. That our unity has been tested and will continue to be tested. You know, in the past nine months, the differing political agendas, the different expectations of how our church should respond to the presidential election, the timing and the way to reopen our church have tested our unity. By the grace of God, we have survived the test because we have clarity of our vision of being a vibrant church of disciple makers. We have unity among the pastors and leaders of our church, and we have the support of the majority of the congregations. We survived that test. But you know what? We will be tested more in 2021. Look at that new building. It is about to be completed in a few months. That new building will test our unity. How do we share that facility? Who get to move in there? How do we mobilize the church to go out of the four walls of the church? How do we open our facility to welcome our neighbors, to welcome our community to come into our midst? And do you have that heart big enough to embrace strangers, neighbors, and to be a part of our church? Our unity will be tested as we continue to build a church with three congregations of different languages, of different cultures, we will be tested. Our church, our unity will be tested when we challenge our church to think outside the box. Our commitment to submit to the scripture and to choose the way of the cross will hold us together in the love of Christ in unity. We have been tested and we will be tested again and again and again. So always go back to the scripture and always choose the way of the cross. Secondly, I want to be very honest with you. I want to be very real with you. Secondly, the Corinthian way is an attractive way. Like the Hallett Packard way, the Apple's way, or the Microsoft's way where they have a special way of building their products and their companies. The Corinthian ways is also an attractive way. As much as we march to a different drummer, as much as we live in the world but not of the world, as much as we have a biblical worldview and a high view of God and scriptures, the Corinthian way is still very attractive because it is so prevalent and so widely accepted in our world today. That celebrity culture, that comparing and competing and ranking in a divisive way, it is so common around us. And we feel it, we see it every day. Only when we submit to the scripture and choose the way of the cross, will we be able to protect the church from celebrity culture, authoritarian leadership, and oppressive structure. You know, the entrusting of spiritual authority to the pastors must be balanced by the commitment of the pastors to be accountable to God, 
to be accountable to the scripture, to be accountable to the cross of Jesus, and to be accountable to the congregation. We need check and balance so that we can grow a healthy church together. The acceptance of the celebrity culture is so subtle that sometimes you cannot tell the difference between a celebrity pastor or a godly pastor. The line is too fine to tell. The embrace of celebrity is so prevalent that when we see someone who is so gifted and so competent, we can't wait to elevate them on the altar of God and to show forth their gifts. But remember, it takes two to clap. Someone says it well. Celebrities don't form on their own. Behind every celebrity pastor is an adoring congregation that both loves and supports the celebrity atmosphere. The development of a celebrity culture also does not happen overnight. It begins with a pastor with a driving ambition for fame. But it can't take root until the congregation supports that ambition. It takes two to clap. Unfortunately, that writer says, many people want their pastor to be a spiritual hero or a celebrity at some level. They not only want it, they expect it, and they find themselves believing it about their pastor. And that's really, really scary. Because not only the pastor wants it, but the people surrounding the leader, they all want it, and they can create that culture because both will make it work. And that's scary. And I just want to share that very honestly with you, that as a pastor of the church, as leadership of the church, we want to constantly watch out for that celebrity culture to seep into the way we serve, the way we lead our church. As a church, we must commit ourselves to the scriptures and choose the way of the cross so that we will not fall into the pitfall of the Corinthian way. And that will cause divisions and disunity at the time when we really need to pull together to be a vibrant church of disciple-makers. And with that foundation, we can ease into 2021. We can enter into 2021 with confidence, knowing that it is God's way. It is Jesus' way. It is the Bible way that will be guiding us in 2021. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord. We give you glory and honor because this is your church and you are teaching us how to do it, how to serve and how to expand and how to grow and how to grow deep through the teaching of God's word, through the reminder of the Holy Spirit and through our humility of walking the Jesus' way. Father, I pray for our church that in a few days as we enter into 2021, that we will continue to commit 
to the teaching of God's Word, and we will continue to commit to the way of the cross of Jesus so that we'll be able to live in unity and we'll be able to honor Christ in our church for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.